This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.35, The Cactus Flower, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan and... Huh? What am I doing all the way out here? And I'm Nina, new to Zeta and astonished that the writers managed to come up with a worse romance than Recoa Quattro. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 285 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Sarah E., Time Crash, Vaknosh, and Dominic D. We are so close to 300 patrons. If you aren't already a patron, what are you waiting for? <laughs> On top of our backlog of bonus content, you get access to our patrons-only Discord, described by some patrons as the best community on the internet, and great MSB merch. Depending on patron tier, you may get a personalized thank you card, a one-time box full of MSB merch, or even seasonal merch boxes. For those of you at that tier, we will have an update on our Zeta box very soon. A quick update on the Love is the Pulse of the Memes contest. I know we said we would announce the winners in this episode, but because we are still in the process of having our patrons vote, and we record this part of the episode quite early in the week, we don't actually know yet who the winners are. Uh, we will be able to announce this weekend on social media, but in the episode it will come up next week. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 34, The Call of Darkness. After the recap and our talkback, our research for this episode covers the surprisingly feminist origins of the Axis Xeon symbol and Shinta and Kum's professional wrestling debut. But first, let's tune in to TNN. <laughs> Filthy space-noid parasites back where they came from. And that's why I always say that the only good zombie is a dead zombie. Next up after the break, the 10 most brutal Xeon atrocities. Number 6 will shock you. Followed by an update on the outbreak of contagious novel space madness on side 2. Then join us for an all-new episode of The Tea with Lieutenant Nina's daughter, part 2 of her special investigative report on the traitors who call themselves space-noid justice warriors. Then at 8, Dr. Namikar Cornell returns to the program to show us how anyone can scientifically determine whether their neighbors are secretly spacenoids just by measuring the shapes of their skulls with her exclusive line of pre-calibrated calipers. Plus, a young woman who believes all spacenoids should be sterilized. Her position may be extreme, but you can't deny she makes some good points. In order to maintain our objective impartiality, we'll present no rebuttal whatsoever. But first a message from our sponsors, Boutique Menthol. I find myself on the threshold. Hey, Lou, what have you got for us? Hmm. Really? Okay. And we are on in three, two. Welcome back. Let's all give a gracious Earthnoid welcome to our heroic new allies, Princess Mineva Zabi, her loyal advisor, Haman Karn, and all the good folks from Axis Xeon. Following a meeting between the Titans' warship Dogos Gear and Axis Zeon's Guadon flagship, Paptimus Sirocco has concluded a treaty of friendship and mutual assistance with the strong and reliable Zabi royal family. Experts believe that the return of the charming and courageous Mineva Zabi to the Earth's sphere will act as a stabilizing force for scattered Zeon remnants and spacenoid rights activists alike. You know, I've always believed that what the spacenoids really needed was a strong leader to unite them. Me too. Up next, I'll count down the top 10 reasons to love and protect Minavazabi. Number 6 will melt your heart. 
followed by a special live episode of Suit Talk. You've got to Gaza see it to Gaza believe it. Everything we know about Axis's new wonder suit. Then the debut of the Murasame singer's new smash hit, I Kissed a Space Boy and I Liked It. And at 8, fashion correspondent Lieutenant Yazan Gable will present Hot Looks and Haute Couture, 20 Years of Haman Karn. Now that Axis and the Titans are working together, the war against Ayug is as good as won. And now the recap for The Call of Darkness. The Argama buzzes with activity. The ship's hull is still damaged, many of the mobile suits are barely functional, and they may have to fight again at any moment. Wang Li wanders through the hangar, yelling at the engineers, criticizing everyone's work and harassing them for not working harder. Noticing Quattro's arrival, Camille hassles him for not visiting Rekoa. She is still recovering from the bullet wound she took protecting Quattro when they were escaping the Guadan. But Quattro just smiles and says he will visit when he has time, and Camille asks Fa to visit instead. Looking up to a knock on the door, Rekoa seems disappointed that it is only Fa. But she recovers and asks Fa's assistance in sneaking past the doctor and back to her own room. Quickly darting into the elevator, Rekoa grins prompting Fa to remark, You like this sort of thing, don't you? On the way to her room, Rekoa tells Fa about her life. Losing her parents in the One Year War, becoming a guerrilla and losing her friends in the fighting, joining the Federation when the war ended, and finally joining Ayug. At some point, she realized that she only feels alive when she's living on the edge. After so many years, it's become part of her personality. But she also thinks that if the right man came along, she might stop chasing danger. In her room, her once massive plant collection has been whittled down to a single potted cactus, studded with buds. There must be a reason for there to be men and women. Just don't become a woman like me, Fa. Standing in the doorway, Fa murmurs that she doesn't understand. You will soon, Rekoa tells her, as Fa leaves to get back to her duties. Alone again, Rekoa thinks to herself that this room isn't waiting for her to come back safely. On the bridge of the Dogoskir, Yazan urges Soroko to take this opportunity to destroy the Argama. The negotiations with Axis are still underway, but Yazan is insistent. He wants to attack now while their enemy is weakened, and finally, Soroko gives his permission. Back on the Argama, Wang Li continues to antagonize the crew, grabbing Torres by the shirt and demanding to know why Bright isn't on the bridge. When Bright arrives, Wang Li complains that the ship is lacking in order and discipline, and wants to know when they plan to attack the Guadan. Bright, aghast, explains that with the ships and the mobile suits so badly damaged, they will need time and repairs before engaging the Titans in battle again. This is not what Lee wants to hear, and Bright is forced to put his foot down. If the enemy attacked us in force now, we'd be doomed. While they argue, the bridge crew spot incoming Titan's mobile suits, and it is no longer Bright or Wang Li's decision to make. Rekoa can hear something calling to her, but when she asks Camille, he assures her it's not him. They dart away from each other, dodging an attack, and the Methus winds up grappling one of the Hambrabi. Again, Rekoa can feel a powerful will, and all of space suddenly looks sharper, brighter, more beautiful. Quattro comes to help her and chases off the enemy mobile suit, but a distracted Rekoa continues to wander off by herself, seemingly unable to pay attention to the battle around her. Before the initial attack, Yazan and his wingmen deployed dummies, making it look as though a squad of nearly a dozen Marasai had come up behind the Argama. When this group of dummies is discovered by the Argama's scouts, Bright orders all mobile suits, including those from the Radish, to engage. While the bridge crew relay Bright's orders, Wang Li continues to get in the way, until Bright finally tells him off. We're in the middle of a battle! Get in your seat and stay there! What did you just say to me? Wang Li asks, incredulous. I am the captain of this ship. If you cannot abide by my orders, I'll have you leave. With the first pop of a dummy mobile suit, Emma discovers that they've been tricked, and they all rush back to defend the ships. I missed my chance again, Rekoa sighs to herself. Chance at what, we are left to wonder, as within moments she is fighting Yazan. His mobile suit seems to fade away, and she can see his figure floating in space. At near point-blank range, she cannot bring herself to fire the Methus gun. Taking advantage of his seemingly frozen enemy, Yazan blasts an arm and a leg from the Methus, 
and Rekawa remains completely unable to move. Now Yazan senses her as a naked form floating in space, but rages that he will not be tricked by an illusion. Is it the power of this person that's been calling me? Rekawa wonders as she charges. Startled by the sudden attack, Yazan uses the Hambrabi's hook to stab up through the torso of the Methus, puncturing the cockpit. In that moment, Rekawa is unafraid, certain that she will die and reconciled to it. But what if someone is calling out to her? Exiting through the hole in the cockpit, she yells at the Hambrabi, Is it you? The Methus explodes from all the damage it has taken, but Yazan catches Rekoa in the Hambrabi's hand, shielding her from the blast. Seeing that Ayug has finally uncovered their ruse, Yazan orders his squad back to the Dogos gear and takes Rekoa with him. On the Argama, the total destruction of the Methus has them all convinced that Rekoa has died. Although Fa blames herself for helping Rekoa sneak out of sickbay, Camille comforts her that it wasn't her fault. It was Rekoa's decision to fight. Still, he leaves angrily and goes straight to Rekoa's room where he finds Quattro. Launching himself forward, he punches Quattro in the face. If you had just been kinder to her, this wouldn't have happened. From the floor, Quattro looks up, calm and smiling sadly, and says, the cactus flowers have bloomed. Furious, tears running down his face, Camille leaves him there. There is really something wrong with Rekoa. Yeah, as you pointed out when we first watched, there are really three interesting characters in this episode. And with the exception of Rekoa, it's pretty bad. <laughs> we don't want to talk about any of them. Because it's also Yazan and Wang Li. But we are honor bound to talk about these Gundam characters, even though we find them loathsome. Repugnant. But let's start with Rekoa. After getting rid of all of her plants, now she has one plant. And it's a cactus. Yeah. A flowering cactus, but a cactus. Metaphor. Yeah. Well, it, it has to be symbolic, uh, particularly because, I'm going to jump ahead a bit, but when, when everyone on the Argama thinks that she is dead, and Camille goes to Rekawa's room and finds Quattro there, and punches Quattro, and is like, why couldn't you have been nice to her? Like, if you had just been nice to her, she wouldn't have gone and fought. He pulls a classic quattro. Refuses to respond to anything that Camille has said and just makes a cryptic comment. This is, the cactus is blooming. <laughs> the nature of that comment actually made me wonder if he suspects that Rekawa is not really dead. Mm. Because if the cactus is Rekawa and Rekawa is the cactus and her weird sexual or romantic tension with Yazan and their weird new type interactivity can be related to this, like, prickly plant blooming. Yeah, Rekoa kind of coming out of her shell is the wrong analogy. Actually, Rekoa is, like, becoming receptive, accepting all of the new type messages of the universe that are coming at her. And I feel gross just saying this, but, and being more feminine? Hmm. She has her whole bit with Fa, where she says, you don't want to be a woman like me. Mm-hmm. I went through these traumatic experiences. Now I don't feel alive unless I'm in danger. Oh, but I would probably give it all up if the right man came along. <laughs> it's so weird. It's bizarre. Um, it doesn't really feel like it fits her character. I There's something very incongruous about saying, here is this thing that is a fundamental part of me as a person, of my personality. Oh, but I would give it up for the right man. She does make the point after Fa leaves... She looks around her room and she's like, this room is not waiting for me to come back safely. She wants to feel as if someone cares whether she lives or dies. She wants to feel as if there's someone waiting for her to come home from each of these missions. And this sense that if someone were waiting for her, she might take fewer risks or be less of a thrill seeker. But I think that's if she thinks that about herself, I still think she's wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's a story she's telling herself. That's not real. And in this episode, we know it's not real because earlier on, we have this sequence. What actually starts that interaction between Rekoa and Fa is that Camille is worried about Rekoa. Camille asks Fa to go and check on her. Fa goes and checks on her. And this shows both the relationship that Camille has with Rekoa and the relationship that Fa has with Rekoa. 
And when Fa tells Rekua that Camille asked Fa to check on her, Rekua seems disappointed yeah. because Camille's not the right person. Right. Is the right person Quattro? I don't think so. I don't think there is a right person. I think Rekua's dissatisfaction is independent of the things that she's blaming it on. It's not at all unusual for someone to blame their dissatisfaction on like, oh, it's because I don't have a boyfriend. <laughs> if I just had a boyfriend, I would be happy. If I just had a boyfriend, life would be great. I mean, that's one of the incongruities of the situation, right? Here's an entire crew seriously broken up thinking that Rekoa is dead. They they love Rekoa. They care about Rekoa, but it's not what she wants. Well, because she feels completely isolated, separated from all of them. And that's... That's trauma, yo. Yeah, which we know from this episode, she suffered a trauma at a very young age, never dealt with it. She went straight from being in the gorillas after losing her parents to losing all of her guerrilla comrades in that little flashback we see. And then she joins the Federation Army and then she joins Ayuk. She's just going from one exciting, violent, dangerous distraction to the next. It's finally caught up to her. But there's more to it than that. Like, she says a lot of things in this episode that you could take at face value, but the episode is clearly showing us that something else is going on. All of the new type of moments, the connections, the things she keeps hearing, the way she keeps going into a daze whenever she's out piloting. Like, something is happening to Rekua in this episode, something that is not explained by her dialogue because she doesn't understand it. And perhaps that activation is what the blooming cactus refers to couple of other points about her risk-seeking, though, before we move on to the more new typey stuff. When she first gets in the Methus and goes out into space, the first thing she says is, this pain won't go away. And the second thing she says is, it's so beautiful. <laughs> and that's just Rekoa, right? <laughs> that she can only really appreciate the beauty of space or anything good when there's also pain or risk associated with it. Nothing can ever just be good. Yeah. She was really waving a death flag in both hands in this episode. Yes. Not least of which because the whole sneaking out of medbay, getting into a ship and flying off to join the combat, even though she's not supposed to, that's how Ryu Jose died. And while Rekoa is not a great analog for Ryu, she does kind of occupy that position on the Arkema. She's above most of the other pilots, more experienced, a little bit older. She is the big sibling type to Camille sometimes. And she's also a kind of second-in-command sounding board for Bright. She's a poor substitute for Ryu, but everybody on the Arkema is a poor substitute for their white base. Counterpoint. <laughs> Also, her disorientation, the fact that she keeps not really seeming to know where she is or what she should be doing. We come back to the theme from her conversation with Quattro where she says, I don't think people really understand themselves completely. Nobody. And she certainly doesn't because she looks up at one point and says, what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah, like I said, she's in a trance. She's in a daze. That happens to her a couple of times. But then towards the end of the battle... She says, I missed my chance again. To die or to leave? Yeah, I wonder, is, is it her chance to die or is it her chance to find this thing that keeps calling to her? Because it, it's called to her during previous battles, remember? And mm -hmm. we always thought it was Sirocco. But this time, we don't think it's Sirocco. We think it's Yazan. Oh, I think it's Sirocco. You still think it's Sirocco? I do. But through Yazan? Yazan's like a conduit? Perhaps. Or, I mean... Yazan is physically located between Rekoa and Sirocco. Mm. And we also know that Yazan kind of has Sirocco's touch on him. We saw that in the previous episode and you pointed it out. The reason I don't think it's Yazan is because it feels from the way Rekoa is being pulled, is being drawn, as though this has some intentionality or at least some participation from the other person. But the one time that Yazan starts to connect with Rekua, the one time he starts to have that new type experience with her, he shuts it down immediately and completely. He's like, this is an illusion. I won't be fooled. I'm not interested. I reject this call. View screen off. <laughs> it's true. 
Note in passing, there is a persistent argument within the fandom about whether or not Yazan is a new type or has new type capabilities. He clearly does. There's no question in my mind after seeing him in this episode, Yazan is a new type or could be if he wanted to be. Right. I think that's part of why Sirocco chose him. I think that's part of why Sirocco lets him go out on this mission because he's determined enough. Have you noticed whenever anybody is committed enough to a course of action, Sirocco just lets them do it? He did initially put up some resistance. But that's why I said committed enough. It can't just be like, oh, I kind of think we should do this. It has to be, no, I really, really think this is what we should be doing. In the same way that he let Sarah fight on her own. In the same way that he stops Sarah here because she's going to join the battle just because, oh, we're launching mobile suits, I should go. And he's like, no, no, this is not the right kind of fight for you. And I wonder if he's afraid she's going to interfere with whatever's happening hmm. with Rekawa and like too many new types. Or the wrong combination of new type energies. Right. Which brings me back to when Rekawa is out there and she's fighting Yazan and she's thinking, oh, is this the person? She doesn't actually say, is this the person that's been calling me? She says, is it the power of this person that's mm. been calling me? Which feels like a significant distinction. Yeah. That it's some sort of power or energy related to, but not entirely synonymous with the person. Huh. This is not my personal belief about this, but you could look at that and read that within the gender dynamics that Rekawa was talking about earlier during her scene with Fa. Mm -hmm. Because Rekawa is talking about this very binary, gender essentialist idea. There are only two sexes. There have only ever been two sexes. They are inherently different and they have different purposes. Right. They are inherently different in a way that is meaningful and like can complement each other. In case our tone <laughs> does not convey this, uh, neither of us is much a fan of gender essentialism. And you know who else is not a fan of this? Fa. And I think the show, because when Reko is saying this to Fa, Fa's like, okay, I, yeah, um, I totally get what you're saying, but uh, I don't understand it at all. Bye. <laughs> Leaves as quickly and uncomfortably as she can. But putting that aside, Looking at this Rekua-Yazan dynamic on the battlefield, you do kind of get Yazan as like the most masculine ideal and Rekua as this like feminine counterpart who is looking for that masculine ideal. Right. So maybe it's that man energy coming off of Yazan that right. is what's drawing her out. Well, and the fact that the scene is preceded by the two of them sort of viewing each other through their mobile suits in the way that we've seen certain... Uh, new types to do before. Where the mobile suit disappears and they just see the pilot. Right. Except only Rekka was naked. See, yeah, that's part of why I think it's not actually Yazan that's drawing her, but it's Sirocco through Yazan, that Yazan is a, a blank. Hmm. I don't know. I, I thought it was just sexism. <laughs> you know. That they wanted to draw naked ladies and have no interest in drawing naked dudes. It can be both. It can. And then immediately after the, oh, is it this person's power calling me? The hook thing from Yazan's mobile suit. Because his mobile suit is a stingray, it has a stinging hook tail. Which comes from behind it, but then like up through its legs. Stabbing Rekawa's mobile suit in approximately the groin area. Uh-huh. And like up into the cockpit. Like it actually uh, punches a hole through the cockpit, just narrowly missing Rekawa. Yeah, by inches. So up through, you know, the... You could say womb, you could say hara or like center, you could say heart mm -hmm. <laughs> of the mobile suit. Ugh, it's yep. all very explicitly sexual. That is a sex metaphor. And this is an even more explicit sex metaphor than when she plugged into Quattro's big gun. Yep. Also a much more violent one. Yeah. And reflects the differences between Yazan and Quattro as like people. Yes. Yazan is like violent and aggressive. He damages you. Quattro like draws the strength out of you. Quattro takes your energy. But in a very uh, sort of passive and indirect way frequently. I have some things to say about Quattro, but we'll come back to that because I think <laughs> we have to finish talking about Reko and Yazan. She realizes that she's probably going to die, is completely unafraid. In fact, it's like, oh, wait, I wanted to die. <laughs> if you thought we didn't have adequate substantiation for Rekawa's death wish, she explicitly states it here. <laughs> but then she's like, wait, but if this man is calling out to me, maybe I don't want to die? <laughs> like, 
She says that she wanted to die because, being on the verge of death, she felt nothing. Even the excitement of battle, even the excitement of AU, no longer excites her. But now she feels this call. She feels something. Something new. Something at all. And the fact that she leaves the Methus to yell <laughs> in Yazan's mobile suit's <laughs> face and be like, Is it you? Uh, is probably what saves her because then the Methus explodes. But she's already free of the interior of the mobile suit and Yazan catches her and protects her from the rest of the explosion. I completely did not get why they have Yazan say, oh, she seems like a decent woman. Every time he has met her on the battlefield before, it's always like, I hate women on the battlefield. Die! <laughs> so this was very confusing. Unless he's also uh, being mind poisoned a little bit. <laughs> I think he is absolutely being mind poisoned. So there's this moment when Yazan is trying to convince Soroko to let him go out on this attack. Yazan has an argument for how this is tactically necessary. Soroko says it's not. But then there's a moment where Soroko switches from opposing it to supporting it and telling Yazan that Yazan is so essential and he needs him for this mission and go forth and I'll make sure that you're rewarded for it. I get the impression watching Soroko there, I feel almost as though he has had a vision, like he has used his sort of mystical forethought, which we've kind of gotten the impression that he has, mm -hmm. to imagine the outcomes of this battle. And it's that which convinces him to let Yazan go. And maybe what Soroko is getting out of it is Rekua. But he knew that Yazan would just, like, kill Rekua on the battlefield unless he did something to Yazan's mind. To my mind, it's also very possible that... Soroko doesn't necessarily want Rekua for himself in a romantic sense. He wants Rekua to join him. He wants Rekua on his side and is doing what he can to cause a romance to occur between these two people mm. because he has seen into Rekua and has identified like, oh, this is what she wants more than anything in the world. And if I can make sure she gets it, she'll be like one of mine. I think even more than looking into her and seeing what she wanted, he looked into her and he found some small candle of desire for this thing. And then he like coaxed it into an inferno that burned up all of the rest of Rekua because she wasn't like this before. And while we didn't have a great view into her internal world before these episodes, this does feel like a change for her. It's true. I mean, and, and we've noted time and again, her before meeting Soroko is very different from her after. And it seems clear that the show is telling us that he caused some kind of a change in her. And what's more, what Rekua is saying in this episode about the two sexes that always have been and they each have their own independent, unique roles. That's very Soroko stuff. That's very, like, I believe the leader of the future will be a woman, and it's my job to stand at her side. I was also reminded a little bit of a sort of classic trope within Westerns, which is in Westerns, you always have this rough-and-tumble man, and then you often have a, a good woman who is the civilizing influence, right, who comes in and uh, domesticates him, for hmm. lack of a better word. And Reko is sort of looking for that in reverse, right? She feels broken and wild and feels like the right man <laughs> would fix her. So I don't have a ton of comments on Quattro, but a couple of little things before we move on to talking about Wang Li. When Quattro tries to stop her from going into battle, when he says, you're not well enough yet, what are you doing? She says to him, you haven't done anything to convince me to stay. And she leaves and he is standing by himself and says to himself, what do you want me to do? And I thought he was completely sincere. Yes. He has no clue what it is that Rekua wants from him. He is utterly baffled. And I think this is actually good evidence of what we were saying about Rekua before, that this is a major change in her personality. Ah, see, I, I read it more as... <laughs> We've seen Quattro on occasion be very manipulative, but only when it was sort of obvious what was necessary to do that. He is actually really horrible at reading people and, and not much good <laughs> at relationships, period. I mean, you know, I'm always happy to chalk things up to Quattro not knowing how to be a person. But in this case, I have some sympathy with him. 
I got constant flashes of Von Camille's earlier conflict where I don't know how much of this is women's point of view. You'll have you'll have to speak to to that, but like obviously it's not enough for you to act like a good friend and colleague. She wants you to like be in love with her. She wants you to act like you are in love with her. Duh. <laughs> and earlier in the episode Camille does say something like that to Quattro, like I've heard you haven't even gone to check on Requa in sickbay. What is wrong with you? And Quattro is just like, oh, I'll, I'll go when I have time. And his whole punching Quattro later and complaining mm-hmm. to Quattro shows that Camille has understood at least this much, which, oh my God, I loved Astonaji laughing at Camille being like, it's really rich of you, of all people, <laughs> to be complaining <laughs> that Quattro doesn't know how to treat women. <laughs> that was really good. Yeah. That conversation between Quattro and Requa when they're both going out into the battle If you pay close attention, the room they're in, all of the doors are labeled danger. So visually, in this scene, both of them are always standing underneath a sign that says danger. Love it. The other thing that I noticed about Quattro in this episode is we get another example of him using indirect power, is how I think of it. We're going to, in a minute here, talk about Wang Li and what a pain he was (laughs) this whole episode. Pain is putting it mildly. He was insufferable. But in the very last conversation that Wang Li and Bright and Quattro have, you know, Bright is insisting on certain things and Quattro throws in his two cents behind Bright. He says, yes, I I would ask for the same things that Bright is asking for. And it's only after Quattro speaks up that Wang Li stops arguing with them. Wang Li is perfectly contented to argue with Bright, (laughs) but he's not arguing with Quattro. And if I were bright, I would be going absolutely (laughs) nuts. I would want both of them off my ship immediately. Because there is a sense that while bright, in theory, as captain of the ship, should be the final arbiter of every decision, uh, instead he has somebody second-guessing everything he does. And Quattro is essentially acknowledged as more in charge than bright, at least where Wang Li is concerned without having any of the responsibilities of being captain. Quattro gets a lot of decision-making power without ever having to actually be responsible or accountable in any way. It's gross. I hate it. (laughs) He never had to deal with this on the white base. Except, of course, he did when they're like, when Lieutenant Reed was on the white base. Well, sometimes people were insubordinate, but this is different. This is politics. Well, and I think speaks to one of my main complaints about Quattro, if he were a person... And that's that if you don't want the responsibility, then butt out. I don't think it's appropriate for him to be up in here making all of these decisions that then Bright has to clean up or Bright is going to be held responsible for the outcome, not Quattro. Just like coasting through life, doing whatever you want and other people have to clean up after you. Nina, when you have a pair of cool shades, a blonde mullet and no sleeves, you don't have to worry about anything. You can just coast through life. Did you catch that moment when Quattro is like, I was always against trying to ally ourselves with Axis. Oh my God. What? What? I mean, at various different times, he was either against or for it. (laughs) I've never betrayed anyone because I never express a hard and fast opinion. (laughs) I'm always retroactively correct because I never say what I truly think. Also, nothing is ever my fault. I thought the best thing about Quattro in this episode was during one of those conversations with Wang Li, he basically admits the whole thing about trying to recreate the white base. Because first, we know he's told Wang Li that the Argama can make the impossible possible. But then when Wang Li criticizes the lack of discipline on the ship, Quattro's like, but I think that's why it's so effective. Right. That's why it's been able to survive. Don't you see? I designed it that way myself. It's beautiful. Also, the person most lacking discipline is Wang Li. <laughs> oh, my God. I feel like his character has got to be some kind of indictment of middle managers or <laughs> producers or the sponsors, representatives. Right. Somebody running around who doesn't actually know what he's talking about at all, constantly feeling like he should be giving everyone advice and criticizing everyone in a way that actually prevents them from doing their jobs effectively. To the point where at one point on the bridge, some one of the bridge crew is contacting Emma and then he jumps onto the radio and is like, um, what? Is she not responding? I'm a, like, he does it himself. What? <laughs> Go away. <laughs> what is wrong with you? 
to the point where Bright finally has to put his foot down and says, sit down, do not get up again. I am the captain. I will absolutely put you off my ship. Yeah, I feel like most of the things that Wong Lee said about the Argama and its crew could have been said about, say, an animation studio. And maybe they were. Maybe that's the joke. Aren't you supposed to be professionals? What are you doing goofing off over there? What do you mean you haven't finished animating the Methos? The constant demands for things that are totally unreasonable. Accomplish more. Use fewer resources. Get it done faster. Acting like he knows anything about anything. <laughs> like, when he's like, in wartime, nobody gets to fight under ideal conditions. Dude, what do you know about wartime? Which made me wonder, when he finally gives in with regards to them going to, to dock and have the ship repaired and give everyone a break, Bright presses him a little bit. He says, do you really think that's what's best to do? With the implication like, or are you just giving in because you don't want to argue with us anymore? And suddenly Wang Li is like, yeah, that's right. You guys are the ones who know battle. I'll, I'll do what you say. Oh, but his body language is so dismissive and like superior. Yeah, which made me wonder if his plan is to remove them when they mm. get there and put different, <laughs> different uh, commanders in charge. Mm. Like, okay, sure, we can go dock someplace. Captain Bright, you are relieved of duty. We have a new captain who will do what I say. <laughs> it felt like he has a scheme or a plan. The two of us are particularly bothered when characters behave in ways that seem incongruous with the way they've been set up. And I don't know why, but it really gets to me that at the very beginning, we have Beckner and Emma. And Emma basically like hints to Beckner she might finally go on a date with him. Mm -hmm. And he plays it so cool. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, Beckner should be like knees turned to jelly, giggly, <laughs> grinning, ridiculous. Yeah. Like, as opposed to looking basically the same as before she said it, but with a tiny smile on his face. No, no. No. <laughs> the whole scene has him paying so much attention to his work that when Emma comes by to talk to him, he barely acknowledges her. And we actually see Emma kind of put off by that. Emma is kind of nonplussed. And she actually pushes the conversation a little bit further, seemingly because she's so surprised to find that Beckner is not, as you said, going to jelly in her presence. And, and we've absolutely seen scenes of the two of them together in the most recent episodes where he clearly has gotten more used to her. It's less of an issue than it was initially. It's less distracting than it was before. You know, and, and that's natural and good that he is no longer completely distracted by the presence of one of his lieutenants. And it's one thing to be totally embedded in your work. I get that too, even around somebody who you have a powerful crush on. But for him to then realize what she has just said to him and not be like, wait, did she just, was that... Oh, yes. <laughs> heck yeah, Heckner. <laughs> yeah, that felt a little strange. And this is part of a trend we've complained about before where the show is not really giving us the opportunity to care about these characters in the way that we would like to because there are simply too many of them. They're too dispersed and we're just not spending a ton of time with any of them. For Emma to be interested in going on a date with Beckner requires a pretty significant development of their relationship, changes to their respective characters, a lot of emotional scenes between the two of them that we haven't seen, that have all just happened, presumably, off camera. She has never seemed super uncomfortable with his behavior, but she's always strongly negative, right? No, I'm not going to go out with you. No, I don't want to go out with you. I am not interested. For her to go from definitely no to, hey, maybe. It feels a little bit like the show is cheating, doing all the hard work off screen. We talked a bit about the uncomfortable sex metaphor of the Humbrabi destroying the Methus. And after seeing that in the show, I took some time to look at the Methus as a design. It's kind of a bizarre mobile suit design. A lot of its components are unarmored. It's got big old limbs and a very small body, which is a little bit weirdly shaped. It's maybe a little bit like a banana, except that at the bottom end, it curls even more over, curling back in on itself until it looks like maybe a musical note, actually. 
It's also the only mobile suit we've had so far that is only ever piloted by women. While its design doesn't necessarily feel feminine in any kind of obvious way, there's something about the shape of it, and after seeing this scene made me think, it kind of looks like it's pregnant. I would need to look at it again more closely to comment. That'd be weird, though. But not weird in a way that is outside the realm of <laughs> possibility for Gundam. So I'm looking at it right now, and I suppose I would actually say... So there's like a torso in the middle of this much bigger piece. I would say it looks like a crescent moon shape. Hmm. Uh, the moon often being related to women and included in symbolism about women. And included in that symbol that was used for Axis Zeon. Which I will be talking about in more detail shortly. Yeah, I think it's like a crescent moon shape. It's a very strange mobile suit. It is. I like it. <laughs> I see what you mean about the, the part that curls up. I guess if you, if you filled in the space between that piece and the torso of the mobile suit then it is like a pregnant belly. But you have to you have to like fill in that negative space mm -hmm. to get there. So I'm not sure. So I know we already talked quite a lot about Rekoa, but I have a couple more things I want to talk about. The first one is that line of hers where she says, this room isn't waiting for me to come back to it. Which is really interesting because she made it so in the last couple of episodes. She's the one who removed all the plants. It used to be a room full of things that relied on her. Well, living things that she tended very carefully. Exactly. She then removed all of them and is now acting like she doesn't remember doing that. Like, that's just a thing that happened independent of her agency. Sure, but to be fair, there's a difference between someone waiting for me and some plants <laughs> waiting for me. But her focus on the room, though. Perhaps. Perhaps. And the other thing is, I was thinking some more about the question of what is it that is calling to Rekoa? What is the call of darkness? Is it Yazan? Is it Soroko? And I realized that once Rekoa launches in the Methus, she keeps separating from the rest of the Ayuk mobile suits and flying off into space. And then Camille and Quattro catch up to her and they're like, hey, what's going on? And she comes out of her daze long enough to get back into the fight, but then she's drawn off again. And when this happens to her, she's not being drawn towards Yazan because Yazan is attacking the Argama. She's actually being drawn away from Yazan. Fair points. And now our research. This week, Nina researched the Sigil of Axis Zeon and its surprising origins, and I researched Shinta and Kum's professional wrestling debut. As I teased last week, I am very intrigued by the Axis logo that takes up the entire wall behind Minerva's throne. It consists of a gold figure of a woman, hair spread out, arms outstretched, dress curving sort of out and up, all on a pink and purple background. It reminded me immediately of a symbol that appears a couple of times in the TV adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale. In this version, the figure is simpler. The woman stands at the center of a crescent moon, her outstretched arms touching its points. But the similarity is very strong, and after closer examination, the axis symbol really looks like a combination of this woman and moon figure and the Xeon emblem. I will post a visual in social media and in the show notes. And so today, I will be talking about the origins of this kind of symbol in ancient art and the ways in which these symbols were used by different groups, including feminist movements and contemporary pagans. Finally, we'll tie it back to feminist movements in Japan specifically and analyze why this symbol was created for Axis. The simpler version of the symbol, the one I remembered seeing before, is called Astra Star Goddess. And if you search it online, it appears on a whole lot of jewelry. Astra means stars in Latin, but the name could also have been derived from one of several mythological figures. The Greek goddess Astria was a celestial virgin and goddess of justice, innocence, and purity, who fled the earth and became the Virgo constellation. Her return to earth would mark the beginning of a utopic golden age, 
and so she was frequently alluded to in European Renaissance-era literature and identified with various rulers of the time, including Queen Elizabeth I of England, Philip IV of Spain, and Catherine the Great in Russia. Astra could also be a reference to Asteria, starry one or of the stars, a titaness from Greek mythology. According to Hesiod, she was the mother of Hecate, goddess of witchcraft, and other authors wrote that she was also the mother to the hero Heracles. Pursued by Zeus, she disguised herself as a quail and later turned herself into an island. This specific design itself was created by Oberon Zell Ravenheart, who describes himself as a psychologist, metaphysician, theologian, naturalist, artist, inventor, carpenter, sculptor, teacher, author, and priest. Inspired by Robert Heinlein's novel Stranger in a Strange Land, he founded The Church of All Worlds in 1962. He met Morning Glory, his soulmate and future wife, in 1973, and they married in 1974. Now, the most detailed information that I could find about Oberon and Morning Glory was created by Oberon and Morning Glory themselves or by those close to them. So obviously take everything with the usual grain of salt when people are talking about their own achievements. Uh, I've incorporated other sources where time and accessibility permitted. They credit themselves with popularizing the use of the terms pagan and neo-pagan to describe the new nature-based religions that emerged in the 1960s, mostly through their magazine Green Egg. One of the sources also credits Morning Glory with creating the term polyamory, and the two were in a group marriage. Uh, Morning Glory passed away a few years ago now, um, but they are described as influential in the modern polyamory movement. They also bred unicorns, what? <laughs> which is to say goats with a single centered horn. Oberon actually holds a patent for this because it's done with a small surgery to the goat's horn buds. Oberon also founded or participates in numerous organizations related to religion and mythology, was an early proponent of deep ecology, which promotes the worth of all living things regardless of their utility for humans, and has been a frequent speaker at modern pagan and new age events. According to mgzgoddesses.org, Oberon was inspired by Doreen Valiente's poem slash prayer, The Charge of the Star Goddess, to create something for morning glory that represented, quote, the sanctity and the power of women's connection to the cyclical rhythms of the earth and the heavens. The quote continues that it has become an iconic image of the woman's spirituality movement as a symbol of epiphany, empowerment, liberation, and self-honoring for goddess-oriented women reclaiming a sense of the feminine in nature and divinity. Given that we have seen Gundam reference new religions before, and we've seen that Axis is led by women, both the figurehead Minerva and the power behind the throne, Haman, mashing up the Zeon symbol with a symbol of female empowerment seems natural enough. The problem is that Oberon didn't create the Astra Star Goddess symbol until 1987, several years after Zeta Gundam aired. Imagine how disappointed I was <laughs> when I found that out. <laughs> I don't have to imagine I was there. But that's just research life. So the question becomes, could both the Gundam artists and Oberon Zell Ravenheart have been inspired by some older piece of art? Sidebar moment. I'm not a pagan, but this brief research has been enough to show me how little I know. This research piece is going to touch on a small slice of paganism, but is not meant to be comprehensive, and an explanation of terminology. I had always heard the term neo-pagan previously, but understand that many practicing pagans dislike the term since it implies a disconnect between them and the ancient origins of their beliefs. Some prefer neo-pagan since it implies that there's been reform and change, for example, those practitioners who do not practice animal sacrifice, even though it was part of their faith tradition in ancient times. Some don't like the term pagan at all, since it originates in Christianity. <laughs> for the purposes of this research, I will use the terms as they appear in the source material. What I found in digging further back in history was that both Wicca and the goddess movement use a similar emblem. It's a figure of a woman with her arms outstretched to the sides and upward. The goddess movement describes an entirely non-centralized group of religions, practices, and beliefs that emerged in the 1970s in the English-speaking world and Western Europe. Largely as a reaction against male-dominated and patriarchal religions. What the various parts of the goddess movement have in common is a focus on goddess worship, gender, and femininity. But the roots of the goddess movement go all the way back to the 1800s, 
when first-wave feminists began to write and publish their ideas about a female deity, and anthropologists were writing more about prehistoric, matriarchal, and goddess-worshipping cultures. This emblem, associated with the goddess movement, has many variants, but at its core, it is a silhouette of an actual Egyptian terracotta figure, dated 3400 or 3500 BCE. The arms outstretched pose also appears in surviving sculpture of various goddesses and unidentified figures from Africa, Iraq, and Greece, at dates ranging from 4000 BCE to 1700 BCE. I will link again in the show notes with images of these figures. I had hoped that finding the piece itself would shed insight on what the pose means and what the figure represents, but as with a lot of ancient art, it's not clear-cut. The figure was found with several others, and is the largest of the set, denoting that it is the most important. But this could make the figure a goddess or a priestess. The pose could be part of a ritual or perhaps a sacred dance. So what we are left with is the somewhat vague but still relevant knowledge that since ancient times, this pose and this figure has been associated with powerful women, and not temporal powers but spiritual ones. What are the implications of its use here? Remember that Haman called the revival of Zeon Minerva's destiny. The religious overtones also have the potential to reinforce Minerva's lack of political power, her position as mother goddess or high priestess of spacenoids, making her too pure to be polluted by petty political considerations, putting her above lowly day-to-day -day governance. Analogous here to the role of the Japanese emperor, traditionally. She becomes a powerful political symbol without any personal power. So yes, very much like the emperor in many periods of Japanese history. She fits very clearly with the Astria archetype I covered at the beginning of the segment. She's virginal, she represents justice for space noids, her arrival signals the coming of a golden age after a period of suffering and darkness. Certainly that is the propaganda image that Axis Zeon wants to present. And sigils like this are all about propaganda. It's clear enough that Axis is Zeon, with some of the trappings changed just enough. We tend to think of the goddess movement as peaceful, if not pacifistic. So how does this fit with the fascistic and militaristic Axis? Well, for one, it wouldn't be unheard of for such a group to co-opt some unrelated symbolism for their own purposes, keeping the focus on women's power and divinity but scrapping the peaceful elements. This is, in fact, exactly the context in which the emblem shows up in The Handmaid's Tale. It starts out on some very pro-women hippie literature. It ends up being used by an organization that indoctrinates handmaids. But in addition to that point, in the history of feminism in Japan, there is a curious relationship between the feminist movement and the fascistic and nationalistic pre-war and wartime governments. Some Japanese feminists of the 70s and 80s thought that early feminism's focus on communalism, naturalism, and maternalism as counterpoints to rapid modernization were, quote, effective as criticisms of industrialization, but because of their anti-modernist slant, are always in danger of being guided by fascism. The celebration of motherhood by feminists was used by the government to promote the image of patriotic mothers sacrificing their sons for the war effort. And Japanese feminists of the time mostly supported the war and thought participation in the war by women would raise their status in society. This is a history that feminists of the 1980s were trying to better understand and may have contributed to the influence of New Age feminist symbols on the design aesthetic for Axis. And to be clear, this was not a problem unique to Japanese feminists. <laughs> Many American feminist movements have a history of racism and eugenics. So plenty of movements that start out focused on the betterment of life for a group of people can wind up harming other groups or even being co-opted by groups with very different goals. During my research about the Young Officers Revolt of 1936, something that kept coming up was all of these leftists and labor organizers and Marxist theorists in Japan in the 20s and 30s who, in the late 30s and the early 40s, experienced a kind of conversion to hard-right fascist ideology. The 1980s were also a time when the various feminist movements in Japan were having a lot of discussions about what feminism should be going forward, and a lot of sort of counterpoint arguments. 
Should they be looking for equality in the workplace or should they be looking for better quality of life overall because the workplace is capitalist and terrible? Should it be theoretical or practical? Should they be trying to protect family structures or should they be criticizing the traditional family? And we have seen these arguments playing out through Zeta Gundam. Even if it hasn't necessarily been clear that that's what's going on, through the lens of a better understanding of what feminism in Japan looked like in the 1980s, we can see that discussions about whether or not Fa should be a pilot, whether or not Rekua should go on these missions alone, who should look after the orphans, these are questions about what feminism should mean, what the role of a woman in the world today and in the future should look like. And we see Axis Zeon ruled by women, but a militarist fascist dictatorship as another point on that matrix. One image of what female empowerment looks like. Because remember, matriarchy has matri, but it also has archy. Yeah, the idea that organizations led by women are immediately like good and not abusive is silly. In a prior episode, when Wong Li entered the break room with Shinta and Kum playing, the two children were depicted locked in battle, in the final stages of a wrestling match that had seen the mighty Kum handily overcome the larger Shinta. Shinta is pounding the floor with the flat of his hand, the universally acknowledged tap-out signal. Referee Haro and Judge Fa in the classic tradition of pro wrestling matches are distracted, and so the violence is allowed to go on. I was delighted to realize that the joint lock Kum used to submit Shinta is a real one, drawn directly from real-world grappling traditions like judo and wrestling. In English, it is called the single-leg Boston Crab, or the half-Boston Crab, and I am indebted this week to MSB fan and former professional wrestler Action Awesome, who provided invaluable assistance researching Kum's powerful submission game. Shinta is sprawled out on the floor with his belly down. Kum straddles one of his legs, facing in the opposite direction, so she is sitting on his butt or his lower back, but is facing toward his feet. She has one of his legs, the one she's straddling, held in both of her hands and trapped underneath her armpit, and she bends it backwards so that his foot is forced up towards his own shoulder. With one of her legs, she puts pressure on Shinta's other free leg in order to trap it. Ultimately, what she is doing here is using her own body weight as a fulcrum and forcing his spine to bend further than it wants to against that fulcrum. This is painful, and if it's pushed even further, it could seriously injure the boy. Alternatively, this position gives the dominant grappler effective control over their opponent's ankle. Rather than putting pressure on the spine, you could instead use the upward pressure from your forearm against the back of the opponent's calf, and the downward pressure from your armpit against the top of the opponent's foot to hyperextend the ankle joint in what is called a straight ankle lock. The variation used by Kum here is called the half Boston Crab because the full version uses both of Shinta's legs with each ankle tucked into one of Kum's armpits. The full Boston Crab looks more impressive, but it is harder to apply on a trained, resisting opponent. So while the Boston Crab is a staple of worked professional wrestling matches, the half Boston Crab is more likely to show up in competitive grappling matches. It's rare, but valid, and even experienced grapplers have gotten into serious trouble by underestimating it. Do not go looking for videos, you will not enjoy it. <laughs> oh, content warning, horrible violence. With a move like this, you can't really say that it originated in any particular tradition or at any particular time. There are only so many ways to manipulate the human body, and only so many of them that work well. We can say that Kano Jigoro's judo included variations on the Boston Crab from the very beginning, and that catches catch can wrestling, a mostly but not entirely European wrestling tradition, likewise included the move. But it was probably pioneered and forgotten countless times throughout the long history of violence between humanoid-bodied creatures. The thing about a move like the Boston Crab is that, to an outside observer, it can be almost impossible to tell whether the move is being applied in a way that causes extreme pain and potential damage, or not. This, plus the fact that it's just a flashy move in general, makes it ideal for professional wrestling. Both the full and half variants of the Boston Crab saw regular use in Japan's Puroresu, where it was employed by famed wrestlers like Antonio Inoki, Strong Kobayashi, Great Sakaguchi, and Toyonobori who I talked about back in episode 1.24. 
Just as one example, during the course of 1973, Strong Kobayashi, who was one of the biggest stars of the era, won 23 matches via some variation of the Boston Crab. Wow. This episode of Zeta Gundam originally aired in mid-October 1985. We can't know exactly when this scene was drawn, but it must have been sometime around then, and we can point out that in late September of that year, New Japan Pro Wrestling, the biggest pro wrestling organization at the time, organized Challenge Spirit 85 Taiwan Tour, a series of six wrestling cards that featured three finishes by Boston Crab. Then... In the first week of October, their rival, All Japan Pro Wrestling, promoted four cards under the banner of 85 World Champion Carnival. These matches produced three wins by Boston Crab and, on October 5th, in Ryugasaki, just two hours train ride from the Sunrise Studio headquarters, Kobayashi Kuniaki defeated Kawada Toshiaki via exactly this move, the half Boston Crab. Next time on episode 2.36, The Mountain Will Not Come to Camille, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 35 and. Bye bye, Radish! Shinta and Kum get a new sibling. Johnny Destiny Space Ninja. More of a rose gold. Save the Earth by destroying the Earth. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Of course the Titans are litterers. Sneak, sneak, sneak. Aren't you a little short for a Titans trooper? And two dads. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Why do mainstream Gundam podcasts like Mobile Suit Breakdown refuse to acknowledge the powerful romantic tension between Bright Noah and Wong Lee? on any busy street corner. We will totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. you all in on a little secret none of us knows anything (laughs) we've actually never even watched gundam (laughs) all right so this episode is the cactus flower now the problem with that is that you're going to want the screenshot for the episode cover to be that cactus and i just don't think it's a particularly interesting oh no i don't think we need to i think it could be uh, any screenshot with Rekoa in it. You think Rekoa is the cactus flower? I think in this episode, the two most interesting people. I hate to say this, but I think in this episode, the three most interesting people. <laughs> the four most interesting people of the episode. <laughs> right? It seems like you're, like, ready. Ah. So I had a moment, there was, like, a weird glow behind you, and I'm like, what the f***? <laughs> it's the, <laughs> the candle. candle. Yeah, I know, but I <laughs> forgot that we had lit a candle, and so I had a moment. Okay. Our recording studio is on the ground floor in New York, and so 
various uh, sounds and other sensations can percolate their way in. Today it's a smell. It smells decidedly like garbage in here. Which has never happened before. So to ameliorate the smell of garbage, we are currently burning a delightful scented candle that was sent to us by listener and patron The Other Tom. Thank you for making this recording session possible. So it's in only my way, not anyone else's. <laughs> that is how the Nina do. That is how the Nina do. How extremely convenient for those around her. Right. Does somebody have to be inconvenienced? Obviously, it should be me. <laughs> what a pair we are. <laughs> a pair of podcasters. Sometimes these things are just out of our control. In many ways, it's impossible to know anything. And we're back. And wants to know when they plan to attack the Guazin. Wait, Guadan. Whoops. <laughs> were you fidgeting? No. <laughs> I was just so startled you, that you had gotten the name of the ship wrong you, that I started. I, I has a spasm. <laughs> Should I do that again? No. Maybe yes. Yeah, Soroku's a creep. It requires dogs barking. Then the debut of the Murasame singers with. Sp- then the debut of the Murasame. <laughs> Except I'm gonna cut that because I'm not gonna. I refuse to quote. <laughs> yeah. Them. Yeah. Don't do it. Go us. That was cool.